Thank you for that great introduction. Good morning, everybody. He just cut 10 minutes off my sermon, so that's perfect. So we can get right into it. So this is part three. Last time we met, I gave you a lot of detail on uh, where Psalm 45 fit. But just as a reminder, Psalm 145 is at the tail end of the book of Psalms. And it is what the first, leads off the first of the last five books, and it is the grand finale of praise, a firework show of praise that leads to the end. Psalm 145, 6, 7 are just the praise psalms, and they are awesome. We went over that in detail. And this psalm in itself, when you read through it, is just phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And I gave you a taste of that the last two times. And now, remember um, the riches and depth of God's word. There, I told you there was a hidden blessing in this psalm, it's, and it's very peculiar in that um, in its Hebrew construction, if you look at the Hebrew, this is Psalm 145 in its Hebrew, and this is verse 1, 2, 3. It reads from right to left, and um, each the, the, the unique thing about this particular psalm, it has 22 words in it that follow the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the start of each word, of start of each word, here's a blow up here. A, this is A, B, G, D. Basically, it's Aleph, Bet, um, Gimal, Dale. So th there's a particular word God chose that he wants to communicate something about himself in Hebrew, right? And, the, and it follows the se sequence of the Hebrew alphabet. It, that's a backbone of Psalm 145. You can't see that in the English text. And so that's why you got to stay with me here as we go through it. And highlight the word, highlight the English word, because you won't be able to find it, and this is the last time you'll ever hear the sermon in, in your entire life. Nobody's going to do this. This, this, so uh, some of you know that I am studying Hebrew right now. These are the 22 words that are listed in that psalm. And as you can see, look at, the, look at the letter corresponding here. This is the Hebrew alphabet. Each word has the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dale, He, Vav, Sasad. Anyway, keep that in mind as we go through it. So... Last time I took you through the first five verses, and we're going to quickly review where we're at. So the first Hebrew word, Aleph, is aromenka. It's the English word extol, extol, which means uh, it's I will highly exalt, highly praise you. Uh, it's, it's the kind of praise that lifts you out of your circumstances in, and into the realm of the Almighty. It is beyond the word praise. The next Hebrew word, bet, which is bekolyam, is where we get the word every day. It's, it's really a compound word. Bet is, is all, and kol is day, like in Yom Kippur, or, you know, Yom. Um, every day in all the day. I, I, you know what? It's funny. Chris and I were talking on Friday when Jesus in Matthew says, Lo, I will be with you always. I believe there's a connection between this word and that word. If anybody wants extra credit, you can do that study and do, email it to me. The third word is um, 
is the Hebrew word gadol, which where we get the word great. Great in magnitude, great in extent, great in number, great in sound, in age. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. The, the, the fourth word is dale, that's the Hebrew letter dale, where we get D and um, delta. Door is generation, which just means cycle, lifetime, descent. And, and the idea here is one generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. So the story here is to be that generation that carries and declares the mighty works of God into the next generation, be that generation. The fifth word is splendor. Splendor is the, the Hebrew letter he goes into the word hadar. Splendor is a beautiful word. And it's, um, it's a word that's exceedingly beautiful, advanced in royalty. Yeah, I got to tell you a quick story. One of the guys that works for me, um, Lior, he's, uh, he's a project engineer, right? Mechanical engineer, George. Lior is an Israelite. He's from Israel. He's born and raised Israel, and he knows Hebrew. I took that list to him that you saw and said, nobody ever reads that. Well, they do, right? And I'm, I'm sitting here at lunch break with Lior saying, Lior, I can't get a handle on Splendor, on Hadar. And so I give him the whole Psalm 145 in Hebrew. Then I give him all those words, and he's like, whoa. He's reading all this, and, he's, and, and I said, well, what are, what's Hadar? I can't find a good definition. He goes, well, Hadar, those are, when you're driving through Israel and there's these fields and these beautiful, intricate flowers, he said, when they see the word Hadar, they think of these beautiful, intricate, detailed flowers. So am I ministering to this guy? Yeah, well, he's, he, he's loving Psalm 145, and he doesn't know why I'm there. So five words, right? Extol. Everyday, great, generation, splendor. These are the Hebrew words that percolate up through the English text. And now we come to this, the verse 6. They will speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. This, this verse stopped me in my tracks, and I, I camped on it for a while. The key, the key here is it's the Hebrew word um, vav, it's the, the Hebrew letter vav, and the word here is a zuz. The way you pronounce that is a zuz, like I, I zuz. And this, the meaning of the word is might, strength, and power. But it's, you know, it's, it's kind of this, um, it's a root that carries the meaning to defy, defiance, right? And the sense is, Think of against all odds. What is impossible from a human perspective is an event that operates beyond the limits of nature, right? The connection. So this word is not defiance in an evil sense. It defies human. It goes beyond human nature and does things miraculous. And the connection of this verb to it's it's um, yadal. Is the, the word where you see awesome here, this, these two phrases together have a terrible punch to them. And the King James Version translates it perfectly in, in my mind. 
And it says, And men speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. It has this word terror in it. Terrible acts, fear, panic, paralysis that comes from his strength and power. It, it, it really is coming into sharp focus here. And so it, it dawned on me that verses 4, 5, and 6 are kind of saying the same thing. You know, and th- there's a time to get out of the, the, the grammar and the meaning and the morphology of the word and synthesize what these three verses are telling you. And um, this is what led me into the study we're going to go into Declare your mighty acts, meditate on your works, speak of the might of your terrible deeds. I felt the thrust of these verses was telling me to do something about it, right? And of course, you know, I like to sketch. And my sketch, the way I put these three verses together, and the verb is really, the verb that's pushing on this are these two outer circles. The verb is saying, meditate on this, write it down, report on it, announce it, make it known. The verb, it's a strong verb in, both of, in those three verses. And it's like, well, what? What do you want me? It's like, go back to the deeds and the works and the acts. And then these inner rings are talking about what of them, right? They're awesome. They're wondrous. They're terrible. And then they're displaying majesty and glory and splendor. So I created... Three rules. I'm going to go filter and find these things back in the Old Testament that fit three rules. One, might, power, and strength. Two, operates, operates outside of human nature. And then three, terror, fear, and panic. Okay? With these three rules, I, I, I narrowed on, on three, three events. And, and to soften up last week's sermon on wrath and judgment, I've I've decided to call these three events deeds of terror. So if you were feeling bad from last week, you're going to need counsel after this one. So let, let's, let's dig in to the deeds of terror. Let's, okay, so I found three spectacular events that fit this model that you're supposed to be meditating on. So we're going to go into those, and the first deed of terror is um, what I call... Actually, what I call it, it's the end of God's patience. Think about that. Does anybody use that phrase today? The end of God's patience. God's patience comes to an end. Okay? So turn, in with, turn, to, me, I mean, turn to Genesis 7, verse 22. So, so everybody's got a study Bible now, and study Bibles today are awesome because they cross-reference anything. But, one of the notes in my study Bible says, the account that follows records an act of degradation that reveals the end point of God's patience. So let's read Genesis 7.22 and just meditate on this for a minute. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. So question, does God's patience come to an end? 
Do you believe that God's patience can come to an end? The answer is, God's patience does come to an end. It comes to an end, and especially with the ungodly. This passage is the quintessential verse that reveals the end of God's patience. Meditating on that should send chills through our spines. You know, what causes the end of God's patience? You know, the text earlier speaks about wrong marriages, wickedness, evil intent, violence, the corruption of man. Go back and read Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and you'll, it, it gives you the history behind this. I can only scratch the surface here. But there were two groups of people in this story that led to these words. It's, the, it's a time during Noah. There's those people watching the ark ascend and rise in the floodwaters, and those people on the ark. Those are the only two groups of people, right? For those watching the ark ascend in the waters, the day of the Lord was upon them. The day of God's judgment arrived. Eating, drinking, and marrying, it was that day. It came, and it was upon them. Do you think anyone knew it was coming? At least three things are mentioned about Noah. He found favor and was righteous, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Over 120 years commenced between when God called Noah to build the ark and the floodwaters arrived. 120 years of proclaiming, announcing, warning, the building of the ark must, was probably a colossal visual aid, right? A visual aid right there. Noah, what are you building? Why? Why are you building it? People knew this, and the news spread. The apostle Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Imagine the panic as the waters rose and the higher ground continued. Imagine that scenario. The, it, it's, it's the flee to higher ground, and higher ground's failing everyone, and every, the people on the top of the hill, I'm so glad I built my home on this high hill. Watch, look at those minions all flooding. Arrogance, pride. Is there a time in the future where God's patience will end? Is there another day that God's wrath will be executed? The day of God's wrath is going to return again. One time marker is mentioned in Psalm 10, 110, and we just read it. Jesus just told the Pharisees it. He said, um, and it's King David talking, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he goes on to say, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your wrath. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth is yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord sits at his right hand, and he, on the day, he, he will exit, what? It goes, 
He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. So you get a hint. It's a time marker, right? I look for these time marker. There is a time that, okay, so when you think about all this, you have to ask yourself, where's your heart? Where is your heart? What are the intentions of your heart? What will be the condition of your heart on that day? God's tolerance for the ungodly ends, and we need to be aware of that. So back to Genesis, I thought the story ended, but I picked up a little subtle verse that gave a hint of another time in the future. After the ark landed and Noah resettled the dry land, God made him a promise. He promised that he would never destroy the earth again by flood. Genesis 8.22 gives gives some interesting subtleties. Check this out. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, night and day shall not cease. The first hint is while the earth remains. And if you're an engineer like me, you're always asking the opposite condition. What's the opposite? Well, the opposite condition is while the earth doesn't remain. While the earth remains, that means a condition exists where the earth won't remain, right? Gives us another little subtle warning that there's a fixed time while the earth will not remain, at least as described in this verse. In other words, it's another time marker, right? Now now read 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. The story repeats itself. Another day is stored up for the ungodly. And it goes on to say, The word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly, being kept until the day of judgment. So there's the other end. That's the, that's the end. So be alert, people, because you, you don't know when the Lord is coming back. Think about that ark. Those that were taken, who were those that went into glory in the Noah's flood? Those that were on the ark. Those that rose were went in the glory, and those that stayed behind, they, they remained and watched the ark ascend. Our heart conditioned. God's wrath is going to return, but there, there's an encouragement for those of us who believe, and it's, it's in Romans. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one who scarcely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we have been reconciled, shall be saved by his life. Christ died to save us from God's wrath. So a time is approaching, but you have an opportunity here. Christ is there for us. Reach out to him. On another note, 
you know, I like this one. So that was while the earth remains, but check this out. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, night and day, shall what? Never cease. It won't cease. This passage reveals the condition of the earth up to its next translation into whatever it's going to translate into. So you know what that means? Seed time implies enough water for plants to grow, and harvest means enough plants will grow to be harvested. How long? Until the earth remains. How long? Until the earth remains. God's creation is governed by his word, and it will remain as he set it in place. The sequence of seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, night and day, shall not cease. Put that on your liberal agenda. Put that on your liberal agenda. The word is governed by God's word, not your fantasies. Deeds of terror. Got another deed of terror. I call this one, ah, terror and dread fall upon them. It's the parting of the Red Sea. Okay, let me build this story out. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 14. The scene here is beyond epic. Let me, let me take you back. Pharaoh just experienced the strength and power of God and his mighty hand. With claps of thunder and peal of lightning, God sent ten devastating plagues that just wiped out Pharaoh's kingdom, along with his firstborn son, heir to the throne. Beat that, Game of Thrones. In humility, he lets the Israelites go. Led by Moses and Aaron, the Israelites, millions of them, have been set free and have exited the country and are stopped at the Red Sea. With enormous pride and frenzied resolve and reckless abandon, Pharaoh musters his severely demoralized army into one last pursuit, a pursuit to kill all of the Israelites he just let go. The Israelites, uh, Israelites, unaware of this mad pursuit, they're stopped at the Red Sea. But the noise and the clamor of Pharaoh's army arise behind them. What will they do now? Let's read Exodus 14 to get some context. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out here? It is not, is it not? This, what we said you would, would happen to us in Egypt, leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have, you have only to shut up. I want to focus, focus on... Uh, <laughs> you like that version? Shut up. 
fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. I like the King James Version. Fear ye not, and stand still. Wow. The Israelites had every reason to panic. The Red Sea's in front of them. You know, Pharaoh's behind them. Unscalable, passable, you know, right and left. You know, it's a situation where they're completely out of control and completely boxed in. And I'm, I'm thinking as I'm meditating about this that what do I do when I get in terrible situations? Do, you know, how, how do I react, right? When I'm faced with a terrible situation and I see no way out, what am I going to do? An ocean in front of me, trouble behind me, unscalable scalable situation everywhere. What happens to me is I call them counselors come to visit me. They're their names are despair, cowardice, rashness, presumption. Go back, says despair. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? Already talking about their graves. Go back to your old ways. And this Spurgeon has the best sermon library. Sermon 541, he talks about this. <laughs> He's got like, I don't know, 2,000 sermons. Despair whispers, lie down and die. Complain against God. Give it all up. You have been struggling for years with circumstances, and you have made no headway. Just go with the flow. Let the worst come to the worst, for there is no hope of any success in life for you. If the Lord will always give you evil and not good, then curse God and die. Don't even attempt to do things honest in the sight of men. Just let things go. Drift. Drift into poverty. Drift into a ditch. Die. God has given you up. You evidently have been the butt for all his arrows, the target for all his shots. I mean, we all do. We, get, we all despair. Yet what does God say here? What does the God of our salvation say to the Israelites here? He says he'll give us strength to stand. He will give us strength to drive through that storm, your storm, where God impels forward, hell cannot drive back. God tells you to stand. Keep the posture of an upright man, ready for action, expecting further orders, happily and patiently awaiting the directing voice. Be strong. While Jehovah lives, there is no room for fear. A happy future awaits God's mercy and love, and it's always the same. Fear not and stand still. Take time to rejuvenate your faith. Another evil counselor comes and haunts us. Call him rashness. Do something! Something must be done! You can't stand still! You're a fool. Something must be done immediately. Dive into indiscreet haste. Fear blinds our judgment, causing us to make rash decisions. Instead, the God of our salvation says, stand still. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. 
So I say to you today, in whatever situation you're in, listen carefully to the encouraging word of God and make it your own. Fear not and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Isn't that an awesome encouragement to make every day? Let's finish the story up. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and the waters may, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Isn't it nice to just see how strong and mighty God is and what he can do? And he's the same today as he was back then, and he has the same level of strength and might for you in every aspect of your life. He's right there with you. Wow. Wow. You can walk through life without fear. Just stand and be still and watch him work. Deeds of terror. Korah's rebellion. This one is phenomenal. First, let me introduce to you who Korah is. First of all, there's Abraham and Sarah, right? Abraham and Sarah, they had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob then had 12 sons, which are the 12 tribes of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Levi then had three sons, Gersho, Gohath, and Merari, and Gohath had a fathered Ishhar, and Ishhar fathered Korah. And now we're in the time of the wilderness wanderings. After Israel, is, they've been wandering now 37 years in the wilderness, 37 plus years as far as I can figure out. And they're in the promised, they're, they're, they're about to enter into the promised land under the reign of Joshua. 
And, you know, remember the, the curse here, that that generation had to die off because of their grumbling and fear. But now, this is where the story of Korah's rebellion picks up. Go to Numbers 16, verse 1. Numbers 16, verse 1. Now Korah took men, and they rose up before Moses with the number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Now, the, the problem here doesn't readily come out. You have to dig to find out what's going on here. So, so the story picks up with Korah on the scene. He's leading a large group of men headed straight for Moses. Why would the chiefs and well-known men follow Korah? These folks are not lightweights. They carry authority and power, 250 chiefs. They are using the force of assembly and one voice to attack. Reminds me of our current media. What was their message? Here's what they had to say. You have gone too far, Moses. What do you mean, too far? What's going on here? What does he mean, too far? We need to go back up to the preceding events. Go read Numbers. Why aren't you reading the book of Numbers? <laughs> You'll see how boring this gets. Okay, so Numbers 15, verse 37 Tassels on the garment is what the subject heading is in your study Bible. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generation and to put a cord of blue on, on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you're inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. And I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Too far. You have pushed your views too far on us, Moses. We will not alter our garments to add tassels. We don't need any more reminders about keeping God's commandments. We are going to take control and do things our way. Your ways are old and outdated. We don't need your commandments anymore. We interpret things differently now in a more modern way. <laughs> For all the congregation are holy, every one of them. Grace and love covers everybody. The charge from, Moses, uh, from Korah is so alarming and so powerful. Look at the response of Moses, number 16.4. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. This was, I mean, the influence and impact of this was so great, all Moses could do was fall flat on his face because he knew this was at, way out of his control. 
So let's, let's find out what's going on. Let me dig. You know, remember, it's like meditate on the, the, the deeds and acts of God. You've got to dig and find this stuff. The error is in the subtlety of the detail. Korah is using a general truth uttered by the Lord himself. Yes, he's using a truth uttered by the Lord himself. Korah makes a true statement. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them. That is absolutely true. So here he is. You've gone too far, and he tells the truth. The heir is knowing precisely what God has said and knowing what God commands. Take this to heart, people. You need to know the word of God in order to be not led astray. Otherwise, you're going to be following Korah. Let's look at Korah's claim in more detail. Read Exodus 19, 5, and 6. Exodus 19, 5, and 6. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Korah heard this. He heard this loud and clear and made it his own. Korah's claim that the congregation is holy is true. God called this people out and declares them a treasured people and says that They're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The twist comes next. Korah extends this provision or truth, call it grace, to an equal right to hold the office of priesthood. Not only does he infer the right to hold the highest position, he believes it can be any of the tribes of the holy nation. Korah argues for God's sweeping claim of holiness that cover it all, right? He takes God's statement that his chosen people are holy and ignores the specifics. He's trying to create his own rules to follow. Sound familiar today? Kyle and DeLitz adds a little color here. Apparently, their present intention was to seize upon the government of the nation under a self-elected high priest and to force Moses and Aaron out of the post assigned to them by God. That is to say, to overthrow the commandments of God given to his people or his constitution. They're over, they want something over. Kors using a truth and then extending it to his own selfish ambition. The special office of priesthood is only held by Moses and Aaron and was divinely appointed by God. Maybe things have gotten a little fuzzy for Korah. Maybe he knows exactly what he's doing. No matter what, he's disobeying the clear commandments of God. Let me show you the clear commandments. And, and Moses is the mediator between God and man, and Aaron was called by God to run the priesthood. And I'll just give you the salient points here in, num- in numbers. So the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons... 
I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who claims or comes near shall be put to death. Again, Hebrews 4 says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. God is in, no, Korah is in direct rebellion against God and his commandments. Korah command, well, God commanded that the priesthood only be held by Aaron and his direct lineage. Korah wants the priesthood and believes he has entitlement to it, wants to reinterpret things, wants to bring in others other than the Levites, other tribes. He wants to just bring them in. He's creating his own rules here, subtly forgetting about what God specifically said. And Moses catches this error. He says, And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? So Kor's in rebellion against God, and Moses lets him know that. The point here is, do we obey? Do we obey God's commandments? Are we, are we trying to reinterpret things in a, in a modern way? Where are we at in our inner person? Do we forget the finer details of God's clear commandments? Do we rationalize our own new truth? Kathleen and I were at dinner Christmas time, and one of our relatives was at the dinner table, and we've got um, grandparents and stuff in, in homes now, and they, they're, they're single, and they're meeting girls, and meeting, you know, they're 90 years old, meeting a mate. And, and we're sitting here listening to the chatter, and one of the chatters, ah, oh, they should just hook up. It's okay now. They're old. Oops. Instantly, our alarm, we're like, oh, God's, God's, God's ways don't change. But we, we, we're living in a generation that is playing a Korah. They're pulling a Korah. So, yeah, are you, so it's really important. Are, are we in secret rebellion, rebellion against God's commandments? Are we, or are we following the well-polished culture? Are you a Korah? Let's circle, circle back around to the story and, and close it up. This is, okay, so then Moses rose and he spoke to the congregation, depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah and Dathan and Abraham. And Dathan and Abraham came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that he has not been it has not been of my own accord. And as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground underneath them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods so that so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into hell. 
and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, Azuz, they will speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. Imagine yourself descending into hell alive with your family so that all that belonged to them went down into Sheol. Imagine you and your family and your little ones all next to you in your descent into hell alive. All because you rebel against God's commandments, you make up your own rules, and you follow the tide of the culture. Korah thought they were old and outdated. Korah thought he could run the show. What was he thinking the very moment the sunlit world closed in rapid descent and the pungent sulfurous fumes were rising? Among the cacophony of screams of their descent, George, we were having this conversation about when you leave this life and you move into the next, how fast does that transition go into physical to the spiritual? So how fast as they're dying in their spirit and they're descending into hell, imagine the horror of that scene. You recognize your descent into hell with no chance ever to return from your new inferno. Have you guys been to Florence, Italy? They have a picture. In the Duomo, they have this huge mural of, it's all like Dante's Inferno, Vasari's Inferno, and they, you're staring at this guy right here. Here's, the, here's his prayer, asking for love and grace, but it's too late, he's already in hell. Look at the fear and panic in this whole scene. That's where you are. Patrick, you're such an outdated Old Testament freak. You're harping on keeping God's commandments. Don't you know we're all covered by grace and love? The grace and love of Jesus covers our sins. Now I'm hearing this argument too. I can go in sinning. I can sin because the grace and love forgives my sin. God forgives my sins. He's a, he's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He forgives my sin. I can sin all I can. I can have adulterous affairs. I can do this because the grace and This is happening to us right now. Okay, let's jump over to Jude if you think I'm a whack job. <laughs> Turn to Jude 1.5. <laughs> Here's what Jude 1.5 says. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What? What? That Jesus saved the people out of the land of Egypt and what? Afterward destroyed those. Who's the destroyer of Korah? Jesus. That's what it says. We, that's another study for another time. Don't even get me started on that trail. But just picking back up, look at this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, 
and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Sensuality is one of the motives for distorting the Word of God. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious one. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. Korah has made the New Testament hall of shame for a big, fat, false teacher. <laughs> Pervert the grace of God into sensuality, reject authority, defile the flesh. Jude shows that the, the defiance of false teachers and their followers against the church's authority and parallels it against Korah's rebellion against God's commandments. Jude shows false teachers' dangerous ability to lead others astray, and then goes on to say that they will be destroyed in like manner to Korah and his company. And how, was, how did that end go for Korah and his company? Look at, I mean, we're in a culture right now where that church is under attack for these very things, and we've got to rise up and know the Word of God so that we can defend it. What was the mission statement of the Shepherds Conference? It was, yeah, the theme, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let me close with prayer. Father in heaven, we just lift up these great stories. We, we so want to understand your power and your strength, and we know that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But we know there, there's, you are multifaceted, Lord, and there is an end of things. We just pray that you would give us discernment, give us the ability to dive into your word and understand it. Let us obey and be obedient followers of Jesus Christ. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.